0: Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me all right at the back? Okay. I just thought maybe we'd just have a few minutes of settling in, just a quiet meditation, just for sort of two or three minutes, just so everyone can land, including myself. So if you just want to settle yourself, and uh, I'll ring the bell in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, welcome. Uh, just before we start, can someone remind me what the, the title of the talk was? Something to do with happiness, wasn't it? Has anyone got the? Say again. But now, yeah, Buddhist ways to happiness and. And something like that <laughs> is there an end to dukkha all right? well, that makes it quite broad. I don't have to hold it too tightly. Um, so good is ways to happiness, and is there an end to dukkha so i mean this this is um basically what we're all striving for, most of us in our lives you know, we want to be happy and we don't want to suffer, you know, so we're looking however we try or uh, strive to find a path through life, generally I would suggest that these are our goals, even though it might be, it might manifest as wealth in our minds or um, finding the right partner or the right situation, it's all because we want to reduce our suffering and increase our happiness. They're very natural human um, drives or values, if you like. But if we look out at the world, it, it tends to be the case that um, people have these drives, these these goals in their lives, but they tend to create more suffering for themselves and end up um, wondering why they're not happy. Uh. So we need to understand the true nature of existence, what we are as human beings. We may believe this is very obvious, what we are as a human being, but so few people actually know what it is to be human, to um, experience this. We get so caught caught up in our thinking, our concepts, our conditioned belief patterns that we don't actually realise the simplicity of this experience, this human life. So from the uh, the teaching I received over the last 20 plus years and the practice, it's all coming down to be very simple, actually. It's, it's not difficult to find this place of peace inside, this place of happiness. It's not difficult to reduce the suffering or be free from it for periods or even be fully released. But having been through incredible stress in my own life through running a business and Uh, falling sick and relationship difficulties before becoming a monk of course Um, you know there was plenty of of experience to work with there was plenty of suffering to uh, reflect upon you know my experience was screaming out to me even though I was desperate for happiness and desperate to get away from suffering it was crowding in So my pathway, the the, the, uh, sort of education system um, that I was uh, conditioned within was trying to create a certain human being. You know, you could even say um, it's like an ambulatory productivity unit they were trying to turn out. Someone who would contribute to society, to the material world, and create wealth, you know not just for myself, but for the community as a whole. And I pursued this, I ran a business and it was quite successful, but I wasn't happy, I was suffering. You know, I had the trappings of wealth, holidays around the world and what have you, and a lovely girlfriend at the time, but I definitely wasn't happy, I was very confused and lost. Because there wasn't wisdom, I was just following the conditioning I received. And um, if we look at the society we're in, we're all in the same boat. There is this sort of drive in the material world, and all of us have to pay attention to that. That's not um, saying it's wrong or evil or bad. But if there isn't a spiritual aspect to our lives, if there isn't um, a wisdom aspect, we will just get caught up in that and believe it's the only possibility for us. You know, we're much more than that as human beings. So having uh, suffered for long enough, I decided to start the spiritual search. And, uh, you know, after many years, I'm sitting here in front of you and trying to explain why that is, you know. And it's very difficult to impart one's personal experience to others, but I'll do my best today. Um, So like like I said, when I first came across the spiritual practice, um, I was extremely confused. And uh, there were many different pathways offered, as all of you may have seen, many options out there, the spiritual supermarket, if you like. And uh, eventually I stumbled across meditation and then through that to Buddhism and the wisdom teachings of the Buddha, which immediately resonated to to me through, you know, the Four Noble Truths related immediately to my personal experience in the past. But what to do with those truths and how to um, manifest a a living situation which could actually support my understanding or my deepening wisdom, or hopefully deepening wisdom around these truths, around this practice. So after some time I, I came to the monastery. And over the years, the complexity that I thought was there has become very, very simple up until now. And it's just being... Being what we are without adding anything else on top. Normally, when we first start meditating, we're sort of harassed by two things. The first one is, is our thinking mind, and the second one can be sleeping sleepiness. So, like the biggest obstacle I would suggest is the thinking mind. It's always creating stories and belief patterns, concepts, and always judging our experience one way or another. And this causes suffering for us. It just creates more and more. It's like a proliferation, as they, as they say, this word papancha in Pali. The mind proliferates on its experience and its judgments. It's always making more out of what, what is there. It's making mountains out of molehills, if you like. Whereas in fact, you know, it's not even a molehill most of the time. It's just a feeling or a perception or a thought. But this proliferating pattern, um, you know, thinking there's nothing wrong with thinking or bad. It's just we haven't learned how to use it as a tool. We've been taught to think and think obsessively about our lives and our problems and try and work them out with thinking all the time. And so much of the time, it just takes us around in circles. It just, we just go around in circles, escalating the suffering. So we have a, what is known as a feedback loop. So an emotion will come up into consciousness, say anxiety, for instance, and we think an anxious thought. And then this causes more anxiety, which pumps more anxiety into the mind and another anxious thought. And then we get caught up in this, this feedback loop that we can't get out of. And this happens with all the emotions if we don't know how to deal with them. So with mindfulness, we're turning away or just leaving our thinking mind alone and just turning into feeling life instead of thinking life. And this is more difficult than maybe it sounds because we're obsessed with thinking our problems out. We believe our thought is ourselves. Our thoughts are true and they dominate our minds and we become a victim of obsessive thinking. We don't know how to put it down. And this is suffering. So if we were a carpenter or a craftsman, we would pick up a tool when we needed it, use it, then put it down again. Now thinking is a great, great blessing for all of us. We wouldn't be sitting in chairs, we wouldn't be in a roofed building like this if it wasn't for the, the um, incredible aptitude of the human mind. But if we can't switch it off when we want to, then we have a problem. We suffer because it just creates more and more emotion. It stirs up emotion thinking. And the only way we can cope with it is just by resisting it, pushing it down, trying to get rid of it, or distracting ourselves, turning away from it seeking alcohol, drugs or other distractions which actually stir up the mind even more. So meditation is going in the opposite direction. It's it's trying to call the mind off so we can actually deal with emotions as they arise and be with them, allow them to pass through consciousness without clinging to them, grasping hold of them or resisting them. So we open up to the reality of life. So the most important thing for all of us, even though we may not be aware of it, is consciousness. Most people don't even pay attention to consciousness because they're so so obsessed with the objects of consciousness. We're always looking out towards what we can get and what we can get rid of. What we can manipulate, our aims, our goals, the achievements that we uh, possibly can attain. And we just overlook the most fundamental fact of existence, which is we're conscious. So is anybody, not, anybody here not conscious? Put your hand up. So some people, I've, I've tried to explain what consciousness is sometimes, and people say, I can't find it. You know, where is it? I can't find it. You, you can't find it because you are it. That's all you really are, is consciousness. You're not your thinking mind, you're not your emotions, you're not sensations. Consciousness knows those things. It experiences those things. Can a thought know consciousness? Can consciousness know thinking? So what does that tell you about Thought. Thought is, is a passing object of consciousness. It's passing through. It's like if you just think, close your eyes right now and you just think a thought like happiness. Just think that thought and bring it up and watch it and listen to it in your consciousness. Now, is that really what you are, a thought? Or thinking itself? It's gone already. It's there and it's gone. But what's left is that knowing, that consciousness, that awareness. And that is always present. So consciousness knows everything. The simplest way and the quickest way to make strides in this practice is to look at what consciousness is and See the difference between it and the objects of consciousness. So everything that you know is not consciousness. It's consciousness knowing that, knowing those things, knowing those objects, knowing those thoughts, emotions, sensations, whatever they might be. And those objects cannot know consciousness. They are dead in effect. Life itself is consciousness. Consciousness is what we are, not as a personality, but as nature, manifest in a human form. And consciousness can only function in the present. So that means, in fact, there's only the present. There isn't anything else because all there is is consciousness. So past and future are a creation of the mind. If you didn't think, past and future would not exist. They would just be the present. Now, this is not dismissing conventional reality and your commitments to work and family and what have you. That's conventional reality. Yes, we have to make plans. We have to learn from our mistakes from the past. And, uh, you know, make plans that uh, take into account those mistakes for the future. So that's not dismissing that at all, but we're looking at ultimate reality here. Consciousness can only function in the present, so we are always present. And what's really happening, time is not passing, what's really happening is things are passing through the present. So your thoughts are are passing through the present, your emotions are passing through the present, days and nights are passing through the present. You're always present. Consciousness and the present reality are what we all, all have. Even though our, it's what we only have, in fact, we don't have any more than that. There isn't anything more than that. But the proliferating mind creates all sorts of stories, concepts, imagination, fantasies, and it fills up our mind with things that are not real. And those things, those beliefs, those confusions, those fantasies, dreams, worries, concerns, stir up emotion so we can feel full up with suffering. You know, Stress is the catchword or the main um, place people identify with suffering nowadays. I feel stressed out. I'm wiped out. I've had a full week. I feel full up. I've had it up to here. And that's what it can feel like. You can feel like you're going to explode sometimes. But it's the mind doing that because it's getting lost all the time in that which is not real. Reality is right here, right now. You don't have to search for it anywhere else. Everyone in this room right now is capable of full enlightenment, If just the information was there and the understanding, it's a finger snap away, it's right under our noses. So why are we blinded to it? It's because we believe our thinking mind. We've taken refuge there. We've been taught to take refuge there. And it's not as if... Our thinking mind has always let us down. It has provided for us like our our work and our families and it's created a certain amount of wealth and security. But ultimately all of us know deep down that we are insecure. There will come a time when our bodies start to decay and fall apart and we'll be on the cusp of leaving this world. It's not, I'm not saying that we have to throw everything out, we have to get rid of our money or our property or our families. I'm saying there needs to be some time devoted to understanding the true nature of existence. And consciousness, the Buddha points out, pure awareness will be that refuge for us as the body starts to decay. Even now, even if we're young and fit and healthy, consciousness can still be that place of security, a refuge, a port in a storm for us. So you don't have to look for consciousness, like I said, because you are it. And it's always present. It's always here and now. Can you get into the past? Can you get into the future? Can you get out of the present? Is it ever not now? Past and future are just thinking. That's all they are. They're creating stories in our minds and then we get lost in them. It's just objects passing through consciousness in the present. That's all there is. So the key, the key to happiness is letting go of these objects, leaving them alone and taking refuge with that pure awareness. Because that pure awareness is peace itself. Now I'm going to test your um, willingness to be open now with um, a few little metaphors, if you like. So most of us, most of the world, believe that there's the body, the nervous system, um, the brain, and consciousness comes out of that. So when, when the body dies, consciousness is gone. But from the teaching I've received, Consciousness is everywhere. I mean, you could consider consciousness a bit like electricity. So in this room, there's electricity in the air. Yeah? And electricity is harnessed somewhere or another, and it can be passed through various machi- machines, like a blender or a washing machine, or an electric drill, or a computer, a power saw. So electricity, it's the same electricity, but it can be, be managed through different mechanisms. So consciousness is, is like that. It's everywhere, and our nervous system, our bodies, are primed. You know, it's, it's their nature to pick up consciousness, which is everywhere. And then it filters them, filters that, that um, consciousness through our senses. So through the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. So we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch and cognize. So we believe that our consciousness is in our heads. And this belief separates us from everybody else. It's not as though um, there's anything wrong or bad about that. It's just the way we've been conditioned. We, as from a young child, like say a a baby, doesn't have perceptions of self or other or gender or age. It's just open, totally, and spacious. Consciousness is free. It doesn't have thought. There's no concepts going on. It's not bound in the same way we are. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wise. It's just its natural state. And that's what we come into the world with, a body and consciousness. And then a conditioning process happens as we grow up. And through our experience of pleasure and pain, we start to contract. We don't like pain, so we shy away. We want pleasure, so we reach out. And the mind gets trained in this way over and over again. So we never see natural or neutral feelings anymore. We're always seeking pleasure and resisting pain. And this creates uh, uh, a solidifying sense of self over the years, until eventually, maybe 9, 10, 11, 12, we become a very solid entity a self, an ego. And then we very much view the world as me in here and the world outside. And the ego, it, it operates on that level. But once we start, start coming into spiritual practice, we start to see, especially through meditation, that this is in fact not the case. Consciousness is not in the head or in the body. The body is in consciousness. You can feel it as the mind starts to open up. Consciousness starts to open up. When we think, think a lot... Obsessively, consciousness contracts around that thought process and becomes very small and tight and contracted. And that is stress. It's suffering. Because all the energy gets focused on trying to problem solve through thinking. And it just whips around in a very tight circle. I'm sure most of us have experienced this. But as we start to meditate and we we have the tools or the abilities or the skill. To open awareness up and leave thought alone. Abandon it as your refuge. It's not trustworthy. It's proved itself to be untrustworthy for many, many years. Soon as you can do that, you start to experience space. Much more space than you've ever felt before. And then emotions, all that tension and energy that's been held down for all the years, starts to move and flow and come up. And release it's like Lompos Ameda used to say, consciousness is the escape hatch. It's like where you release all the prisoners, you pull the escape hatch, and all the prisoners can get out. And that's all our emotions that we've held down. And there's nothing wrong with emotions. Even the most unpleasant emotions, they're not bad, evil, or wrong. They're just part of the human package. You know, guilt, fear, shame, anger, Love, hate, grief, jealousy, whatever it might be, they're going to arise because we have this system in place. And we have to make friends with those emotions. They're not wrong, bad or evil. They just are what they are. And they need to be given space to arise in consciousness and pass away. And the more we allow them to do that, the more equanimous we become with difficult emotions. We don't make a problem out of them. Ultimately, they are not suffering. Resisting them is suffering. That's what creates the tension and stress, is not wanting what we've got. So when we come into the present, the present reality, and we realise there's just consciousness and the objects, it doesn't feel like we're free, necessarily. You say, well, this can't be it. I've still got all these emotions, all this tension, All this stuff going on, is and I'm in the present, you know, this should be it, really, surely. And this is where this horrible, horrible thing called patience comes in. (coughs) So we need to wait, you know, if you just wait and allow it to pass through, it will. It's like an accumulated um, backlog, if you like, of stuff. It just has to work itself out. You know, if if you've held stuff down for a long time or you haven't cleaned your house for 25 years, it's going to take a long time to clean the house. But if you open the doors and windows and get to it, you know, it won't won't be long and it'll be clean. So that's what it is, meditation. is like opening the doors and windows, letting the air in, you know, letting the outside in and letting the inside out, if you like. So consciousness, as it expands, it, it creates space. And we no longer get lost in our thoughts and emotions. So if you may imagine there's a glass of water and you, you tip a teaspoon of salt into that water and you stir it up and you take a drink of that. Now that would be quite intense, you know, very salty. But if you took that teaspoon of salt to a lake and threw it in, it wouldn't make any difference to the taste of the lake. So, as consciousness expands, emotions get a lot smaller and they have less of an effect. So, you're using the body to help expand the awareness and then the sound and then the space that you're in, you know, this is it. This is all there is. It's just pure consciousness. Pure consciousness is peace. But when consciousness is contracted around objects, resisting and struggling, then we're suffering. And we don't have to suffer. This is our birthright. Each and every one of us have this potential to discover ultimate peace. It's not... For most of us, it's not something that's going to come overnight or at the click of our fingers because all the words I'm saying today, you will take a very small percentage away with you and the rest will leak out. So one has to keep at it. You know, the meditation it has to happen regularly, you know, going on retreats every day if you like. And just keep returning to what's going on inside you and learning from that suffering, learning how to expand the awareness and just trusting that if you let things alone, It'll be all right. You know, human beings, we are so... Uh, we control freaks. We can do that with the outside world. We can control things and manipulate to get what we want. But after you sit on the cushion for an hour or two, you see, we can't actually do that with this thing. We're not in control of it. You know, it doesn't really belong to us. Body and mind are not our possessions to do with as we please. You know, is it could anyone in this room prevent the aging process? You can have facelifts and work out of the gym and eat healthy foods, but it's not going to actually ultimately make that much difference. You might get an extra 10 years of activity, but we're all going down the same plug hole. <laughs> The trajectory was set at birth and it ends in death. And we can't stop that. Can, we, can you deliberately just think positive thoughts all day? Can you feel nice emotions all day? Feel happy all day without ever feeling a negative emotion? Can you feel pleasant sensations in your body all the time? You know, this is the whole point, is that this body-mind process is not us. It's like a tool we've picked up to learn from for a lifetime. And if we waste that opportunity, that's up to us. But what we can do is use it and see that actually it isn't who and what we really are. And there's this lovely saying from the Buddha, he said... um, Freed, disassociated and released from form. The Tathagata dwells in unrestricted awareness. Freed, disassociated and released from feeling. The Tathagata dwells in unrestricted awareness. Freed, released, disassociated from mental formations. The Tathagata dwells in unrestricted awareness. It goes on like this a lot. And they said, Freed, released, disassociated from birth, aging and death. The Tathagata dwells in unrestricted awareness. Freed, released, disassociated from stress, suffering and defilement. The Tathagata dwells in unrestricted awareness. He's not lost in all of those things. He sees them for what they are. They're not things we can control or manipulate and make them the way we want to be all the time. Of course, we can have some success on a worldly level, you know, pursuing desire. There is a, a fulfilment in getting what we want. But we lose what we want as well, or we, don't, we get what we don't want. And the satisfaction with what we want, or what we've got, or what we've gained, passes And the habit is established, so we have to chase after something else. So there's no lasting happiness or peace in pursuit of um, goals on that level. The happiness is fragile, unstable. Now, contentment is another word for happiness. And contentment basically means an absence of desire. We're contented with what we've got. instead of seeking something better all the time there's this lovely saying it goes something like um, things turn out best for those who make the best of the way things turn out you know it's, it's like adapting all the time to what's happening it's like we're surfing, if you like, on, on um, experience, right in the present. We're not reacting to it. We're just, the waves come and we're just moving as they change. We're not pushing them away or trying to grab this wave over that wave. You know, it's just, this is what we've got. And learning that there's only so much we can do in terms of manipulation to improve conditions for ourselves so we take refuge in that unrestricted awareness that the Buddha was pointing to that place of peace the refuge the unshakable deliverance of the heart the agupa jeta vimuti as he called it the unshakable deliverance of the heart And it's not in the body, it's not in emotions, it's not in sensations, it's not in getting what we want, or getting rid of what we don't want. It's by letting go, letting things be the way they are. So happiness, the Buddhist ways to happiness, It's exactly the same method to the way to the end of suffering. So if we let go of the three types of desire and rest in the present, the suffering will end and the contentment will arise if we're patient. And we build up a skill set. There has to be a level of disenchantment with the world. And most of us have tried pretty much everything by the time we're 25 or 30. Some people go on trying it for the rest of their days. But obviously you're here because there is a level of questioning. Or you've been on the path for many years, in fact. There's a looking deeply into the nature of experience. And this is something we have to cultivate over and over and over again without stopping. And it's all based around the Four Noble Truths, even though we're, we're giving ourselves to the present. You know, it's, it's consciousness present, but we've got to understand how suffering arises and how it ceases. There's this lovely story by Adrian Samedo, and he, he said that um, there was, there was three, mel- three men in the cells under this, in this dungeon under a castle and the Buddha turns up and he's got a key and uh, he's got three keys for one, one, one for each cell and he turns up at the, in, in front of the first cell and there's a little, little grate and the doors and he looks at the prisoner and the prisoner jumps up and says, it's the Buddha, it's the Buddha, he's come to see me and the Buddha's waving this key and he puts the key through the door and he gives it to the prisoner and he says, take this key And you see the hole in the door, you know, by the handle. You put the key in the door, you turn it to the right, then turn the doorknob to the right and open the door and you'll be able to get out. And he goes off to the next cell. And the prisoner's going, look, the Buddha turned up, he's given me the key, look, the key, the holy key. And he takes it and he puts it on his shelf and he bows down to the key and begging the key to give him freedom. And he carries on that like that for about 10 years. And then in disgust, <laughs> he hasn't got what he wants. He takes the key and he throws it on the floor and it slides under the bed. And he forgets about the key and disappears into his misery again. And then he goes to the second cell and the Buddha walks up to the, the bars and he takes the key, passes it through, says exactly the same to the prisoner. And the prisoner takes the key, he sticks it in the door, turns it to the left and it doesn't work and he gets frustrated and he says, the bloody key doesn't work that Buddha is a complete idiot throws it on the floor it disappears under the bed <laughs> and he sits down in despair and then the third one he goes in and the third prisoner is listening so he takes the key puts in the door turns to the right turns the doorknob pulls the door and it opens and he's free so which one are you? Some people, the key disappears forever. Some people go under the bed and they find it after five years again. Maybe that key does work. Give it another go. Bloody key doesn't work, under the bed again. (laughs) But something in in us knows these teachings are true. You know, the Four Noble Truths. I'm sure most of you here have heard of the Four Noble Truths. So I won't go into into them in much detail, but it's just... The second and third Noble Truths are so important. Understanding the cause of suffering. You know, the three types of desire. It doesn't say that desire is wrong or bad or evil. You don't have to get rid of desire. It tells us to let go of desire. Leave it alone. And then the third Noble Truth. There's cessation. The cessation of suffering. And that doesn't necessarily happen immediately once you let go of desire. There'll be a sense of relief maybe, but for the whole system, the package to unravel, we've been holding this in place for many years. You can feel it in your body, the tension sometimes and the holding patterns. This is what he's talking about. And when you let go, you maybe feel a a little loosening of that. But if you trust letting go is the way, then you will see more and more. The body and mind will start to relax. There'll be an expansion. The heart will open. And you'll experience for yourself, you know, complete cessation, niroda. And this thing, nirodha, it's always translated as cessation. But, you know, people think cessation, oh God, I don't want that. That means annihilation. I'm going to be annihilated. But another translation for this is ni is, means not and rhoda means confined. So no longer confined. The heart is no longer confined. Consciousness is no longer in here. Me in here and the world outside because the barriers come down. There's no more sense of being a separate entity. You know, this, this, what they talk about oneness, it's like me in here and the world outside disappears. Consciousness reestablishes itself as one thing. And you can experience this in meditation briefly, just when the mind relaxes and there's this sense of no boundary. I'm not saying any of this is easy, it isn't, you know, because we have accumulated a lot of um, habit patterns in our lives, like obsessive thinking being one, turning into sensuality being another, resisting pain being another, so we have to re-educate our minds and learn how to bear with difficult emotions until the heart becomes strong again. All of us have this capacity to realize truth. And even though I might be making it sound more difficult than it is with those two statements, in fact, it can be very, very simple as well. Once the insight is had, there can be shifts, very quick shifts. But the first insight that we really need to see, as I was saying earlier, is to see the difference between consciousness and the objects. They are not the same thing. Consciousness is one thing, objects are the other. Ah, there's just two things there. Like right now, what is it that knows that you know? What is it that's aware of you being aware? What is it that is conscious of consciousness? You are conscious, you cannot deny that. And that's the most important thing, is consciousness. So giving ourselves to that, resting in that, trusting that, So as soon as we're getting caught up in past and future, we're losing the plot. We're turning away from the path. So once again, just settling in with what is, even if it is a little uncomfortable to start with. It will improve as the body and mind relax. It does seem a natural point to end now. It is a little early, but I think if I carried on, I'm just filling the rest of the time with babble. So um, maybe we could have one question now, if anybody has anything, and then we could break for tea. Yes. I just wanted to ask you, please, um, when you are, um, for example, in the morning, when you are arising for your meditations, is there, um, I'm sure it's a discipline, but is there a technique of getting through the thinking mind of, of the battle when you were talking about being tired and mm-hmm. fatigue, and actually mm-hmm. finding a way of... Um, getting through that barrier of, of, of getting up to do one's practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, when you've been doing it for many, many years, it just becomes natural. It's, it's like brushing your teeth after a while. You know, you can't face the day with, you know, your mouth full of gunge. And uh, meditation's the same. It's like you've got to have a clean mind before you begin the day. So. Um, I can't really say for myself, because it just happens naturally. I just wake up at the same time every day, and I just put the kettle on, make a cup of coffee and sit down, and I drink the coffee as I go into the meditation. So I'm on the meditation cushion, and then it's, it's there, you know. But the thinking mind, um, you know, there's lots of methods to help one with that, so putting your attention on something other than thinking. Thinking is always desperate to grab our attention. So we have to find a place that's supportive of, um, or, or helps stabilize the awareness. Now, for, for myself, it was the body, was the easiest um, object to, to put my awareness on, because it's so coarse. You know, like the breath is, is if you say at the end of the nose, you're always slipping off it if the mind's thinking a lot. But the body is so heavy and coarse, you don't have to search around for it, it's always there. You know, so I'd always put my attention into the body first and as things got more refined, I listen and that spreads the awareness wide. Now when thinking happens, a thought arises in consciousness, the consciousness, for a train of thought to take hold, consciousness has to collect around or contract around that thought. So I just leave my awareness wide in the body and I listen and it can never come in then. The thought arises, I'm not interested in thinking, I'm interested in being aware, so and you train yourself in that way. So um, eventually, you start trusting the awareness more than the thinking, because you'll see when you actually get caught up again how unpleasant it is. Because you get, you know, you get tense, the emotions start to get agitated again. You go back to the spacious mind, and they calm down again. You think, oh, this is much nicer than getting lost in the thinking. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have to organize our lives. We have to plan. We cannot avoid that. But a friend of mine, he, he would say, um, every day at a certain time, he'd sit on the cushion with um, you know, a cup of tea, he'd just close his eyes, and he says, notebook in front of me, he said, okay, you can think for half an hour. And he just makes notes of everything. So he doesn't have to think about it later, he made notes of what he was, had to do, and the plans he needed to make, and he said, got everything there, so put that down now. And you know, it was a very skillful means to help him not get lost in, oh I, I shouldn't forget this. He's got a note of it, he knows he's not going to forget it. Yeah. So skillful means like that, getting up in the morning, um, I mean it's, it's seeing the importance of it. Yeah. You know, because um, meditation should be the most important thing in your life. But of course, other things press in because they demand that you pay attention to them, like money, you know, your family, responsibilities on that level. But you always, you always deal with them much better if your mind's clear and bright. You always make better decisions, you know, if, if you've meditated in the morning. You know, because you've cleared out the useless stuff and, you know, your mind's ready to go. It's like you've had a shower, you've bathed, you know, you've got clean clothes on, you know, you're ready for the world. But if you haven't meditated, you're just like you're wearing dirty clothes, you haven't washed your body, you smell, you know, nobody wants to come near you. And the mind can be like that. If your mind's like scattered and agitated, people are going to be put off by that. But if you're peaceful and calm and open, you know, your relationships tend and you're, um, you're much more efficient as well. You know, the mind thinks much more clearly. You know, with the work you have to do, and your relationships tend to improve, because you're open to people and ready to receive them without judgment. You know, if the mind's just present without thinking, someone comes up to you, you're not laying loads of layers over over the top of their personality before they get to you. You know, it's just, okay, this is a person, what do they want? Can I help them? You know? Instead of oh my God, it's her again. What was she like last week? You know, Have her five years ago, God. <laughs> you know, you don't think like that because you just rest in. You know, so much of the time you can rest in that spacious awareness without thinking. And then okay, I need to think about this now. Start thinking, and then it works much better. And then you come to a conclusion. That's good enough. But you know, full stop. Put it down, and you carry on with the next thing. Or you just go back into that space again. Now, it might, might sound absolutely wonderful, that, and it is, you know, this is, this is speaking from experience, but I can't do it all the time. You know, still, when there's some stress sometimes, you know, I can still get blown away, so don't think it's, you know, all sunshine and roses, it's not. <laughs> okay, so is any of that helpful? Yeah, okay, good. Anybody else? Quick one. OK, Is there, could we give the man the microphone at the back? Well, thank you for the, for the chat. Um, I'm just wondering, how, what's the skillful means to prevent one from um, identifying one's self or the consciousness as a permanent self? Um, yes, because as the self, it does that. It claims whatever it comes across as being my victory on me. So as soon as, you know, as soon as most people have success in meditation, it's lovely for a few minutes and then it's, yes, I've done it at last. You know, I've got to tell all my friends and that sort of thing. But um, it's just repetition, really. You just keep going back into that space. And you know, it's going to happen to start with because that's a habit the habit of selfing everything we come across, making a self out of it, or claiming some sort of ownership of it. But we see that that's painful. You know That there is no such thing as a self in the whole universe. It's a creation of mind. So the experience of not-self is what we're looking for. And pure consciousness by itself, there's no self there. And you can actually start... Observing self, the creation of self within consciousness. Consciousness ultimately cannot be claimed, uh, but in fact, there's nothing we can claim ultimately as being ours because we're going to lose it all. Everything, you know, and the act of claiming is, um, you know, it's it's a form of desire and clinging, and when we do that, we suffer. You know, the act of selfing is suffering itself. It, you know, the act of Grasping hold of something or, or owning something is painful. Because we've got to protect it and hold on to it. You know, and as soon as you start holding on to anything, then the suffering increases. So we have to learn about the, the process of selfing through experience. When there's contraction happening, then we'll see we, we're, we're either just clinging to something or resisting something or creating a self around it. It's normally one of those three. Um, but yeah, that is a natural process because selfing is a habit um, so we have to see through that in terms of pure consciousness as well You know, I remember I had a wonderful experience many years ago where there's incredible light and openness and spaciousness and then, uh, you know, it's really incredible and uh, it's difficult to explain but after a while it felt like, you know, mostly the self had gone and then in Right in the corner, this little voice said, "Look what I've done. <laughs> I've got it, you know." And and then another part of me said, "Oh no, don't say that." <laughs> and then there were two selves wrestling <laughs> for control. One was grasping, the other one's resisting. And before I know it, it's just all contracted again, you know. So, but that's where you learn. You you learn. You see what's happening within yourself, not yourself as a self, but you know consciousness so like i said consciousness and the objects just getting that perspective and the more we take refuge in consciousness itself then we start to see what is not consciousness you know you can um, be aware of awareness if you like and it's not the same as being aware as an object like this glass it's just like you know that you know now, all of us know that we know, but it's not like an object of sight or an object in the mind. It's just knowing. Okay, that's yes, a good time. You. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, good time to stop for tea. And maybe we'll reconvene at 20 past if anybody has any more questions.